I am here to talk to you about the history of Stewart Observatory, the birth of astronomy in southern Arizona, and it's really the story of this man, Andrew Ellicott Douglas, born in 1867 to um, uh, an Episcopal minister and his wife in Massachusetts. And uh, he, I believe his great-great-uncle was a famous explorer in the late 18th century who explored most of the Northwest, what was then called the Northwest Territory, Andrew Ellicott. Um, there's the list of his, basically, his career. 1891, he actually graduated in 1891 from Trinity College in uh, Hartford, Connecticut, with a bachelor's degree in physics and astronomy. He worked for Harvard College Observatory from 91 to 93, the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff from 1894 to 1901. He taught at Northern Arizona Normal School, which today is called Northern Arizona University, from 1902 to 1906. And he was at the University of Arizona, 1906 to 1962. The guy retired, I think he was 91 years old when he retired, and, and, uh, which was about three years before he passed away in 1962. And why did he come to Tucson? He came to Tucson because he didn't see the canals on Mars. And that's why he left Flagstaff. So, uh, early in his career, as soon as he got his degree, a gentleman by the name of Edward Pickering, who was the director of the Harvard College Observatory, hired him to basically finish the Henry Draper catalog. It was a catalog that Harvard was working on. There was a very famous, in, in a history of astronomy, Annie Jump Cannon and her computers. It was a cadre of women that Pickering had hired to basically type the spectra of stars, and they came up with different classifications of stars. But they wanted to get the whole sky, and you can't see the whole sky from North America, so Douglas was sent down to Peru to set up an observatory, and there's a picture of the observatory that Douglas uh, helped construct and actually arranged all of the observations down in Peru. Uh, he took a boat to get there. It's, it, it left Boston and went through the Panama Canal, and on that boat just so happened to be the Council General of the country of Colombia to the United States. And the Consul General from Colombia actually taught, in, in a two-week boat trip, taught him how to speak Spanish, which was something he needed to know to deal with uh, the uh, uh, people he'd be working with in Peru. Also, it's interesting, in 1893, Chicago had a World's Fair, and Harvard was going to exhibit some Incan artifacts. And Douglas was tasked with arranging for shipping the Incan artifacts from Peru to Chicago for Harvard. And I think it was at this time it piqued his interest in archaeology. Now, before he left Peru, there was a total eclipse of the sun visible from northern Chile in April of 1893. And this, I took this image from Douglas's papers, which are at the Special Collections of the University of Arizona, and uh, uh, he... Uh, uh, I, I had it digitized so we can see a, a total eclipse image taken by Douglas. Now, he intended to spend uh, the summer of 1894 at Harvard reducing his data that he took in Peru, but he met a guy named Percival Lowell. Now, those of you who know something about the history of astronomy may have heard of Percival Lowell. He was a very famous astronomer, in quotes, um, in the early 20th century. And he, made, he had no formal education in astronomy, but he had made a fortune in uh, uh, trade. He was a merchant, traded with China, the Far East, made a lot of money. And you must realize that prior to World War II, governments 
did not fund research. So research was originally funded by kings. If you, you could consider an emperor's. The Holy Roman Emperor would fund uh, uh, Tycho Brahe. But it's like they're really in the 20th century. It wasn't until World War II that we had government funding. So Lowell decided with his fortune and he wanted to pursue Mars. He was interested in Mars and he wanted to build a state-of-the-art telescope in a place that was dry and dark. So he chose the Arizona Territory and he sent young Andrew Ellicott Douglas out to do that because he had experience. He had constructed and, and, and set up a remote observatory in Peru. So there is a picture of Andrew Ellicott Douglas at the loading dock of the Lowell Observatory. Um, he actually did site testing in Tombstone Tucson, Phoenix, and Prescott. The, the, the urban myth is that when he got to Tucson, um, it was pouring down rain, and nobody from the University of Arizona came to the train station to meet him. So that kind of put him off Tucson. Also, the Chamber of Commerce of Flagstaff, they were savvy. They knew who Percival Lowell was and knew that he was looking to spend money to build an observatory. So they were very welcoming to A.E. Douglas. So Douglas, uh, did all of the uh, awarding of contracts to local businessmen and business uh, companies uh, in, in, in Flagstaff. Um, and the observations of Mars began with the opposition in the summer of 1894. Now, here is the 24-inch refracting telescope. It was built by Alvin Clark and Sons. We actually have an Alvin Clark and Sons five-meter refractor uh, in our second dome on the top of the red brick building. Uh, they were considered the Stradivarii of telescope makers. And uh, this is how they did it. There is A.E. Douglas at the platform of the 24-inch telescope. There's Percival Lowell. It was old-fashioned Galileo-type observing. You stared at Mars through the telescope and you sketched what you saw. Douglas at first defended Lowell's theories. You see, Lowell saw lines on Mars. And an Italian astronomer 30 years prior had referred to such features as canali, which in Italian would mean grooves, but of course, Lowell heard the word canal in Canali. Um, and he, in, yeah, he invented, he imagined this intricate uh, 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 network of canals that were connecting what appeared to be arid regions of Mars, because they were so red, to the polar caps, not, not knowing that most of that was dry ice and not water ice. Um, and he wrote books on it. And it was the conventional wisdom in 1900 that there were Martians. Why? Because Mr. Lowell said so. And he had one of the biggest telescopes in the world, so he must know what he's talking about. And in fact, this inspired H.G. Wells to write his famous novel, The War of the Worlds. Douglas, on the other hand, felt uneasy about this. I mean, he was actually trained to be a scientist, and he worried about observational errors. He actually erected a model, a big disk, to be Mars, and he put features on it and stuck it on the roof of his house which was a couple miles away from the observatory. And he would point the telescope to his house and try and see, okay, I know exactly what the features look like when I drew them. How do they look like through the telescope? Right? He was trying to get some idea of how accurate his visual observations were. And so he started to doubt the scientific methods of his boss. Well, it came to a head, December 7th, 1900. Douglas observed a projection that's how he wrote it in the log, a wisp of light beyond the terminator of Mars. Some feature he hadn't seen before. 
Maybe there was a cloud in the atmosphere of Mars. Maybe it was a reflection of light in the telescope. But something that he was cons considered what was real, but wasn't quite sure what it was. Now, he was in the habit of wiring his information to Lowell every morning after his observing. Because Lowell actually didn't live in Flagstaff. He actually spent most of his time in Boston. He would only come out to Flagstaff during the opposition, which is every two and a half years or so, it's when we pass Mars, and it's the closest that Mars is to the Earth. That's when he would come out to Flagstaff. Also, sometimes when I give this talk, I give this uh, lecture to a class here at the university called Traditions and, uh, Traditions and Heritage of the University of Arizona. It's taught by the Ag School. And uh, of course, I'm talking to 18, 19 year olds, they're not sure what I mean by wired, okay? And I have to explain, well, you know, there was no, in <laughs> there was no internet in 1900. Telephone service was spotty. You used Western Union. There was a telegraph system. So uh, he sent this information on to Lowell, and Lowell would always pass this on to his friends at Harvard and European astronomy friends that he had. And pretty soon, a game of telephone happened, except it was a game of telegraph. And somehow, Douglas's original message was contorted into A.E. Douglas in Flagstaff received a message from the Martians because he started getting requests from journalists. Uh, what did the Martians tell you, Mr. Douglas? Okay, Douglas was mortified and disturbed by this incident. He does, though, I think, have a sense of humor because I found this political cartoon in his papers. This cartoon was published in the Rocky Mountain News on January 21st of 1901. And there is uh, a, a figure on the earth and on the sash it says the trusts, right? Teddy Roosevelt hadn't busted the trusts yet. And there's this little guy with a lantern up on Mars. And it says, the owner of the earth, quote, just you wait until I get up there, young fellow, and you'll be sorry you signaled. This was a political card because people, you know, if you believe what you saw in the papers, I, I, when I gave this talk to Ollie last week, I thought this might be one of the first examples of fake news. Um, <laughs> Maybe not first example, but it is an example of fake news, but people thought that Douglas had gotten a message from the Martians. So anyways, Douglas expressed his doubts in a written letter that he posted to the business manager of the Lowell Observatory, William Putnam. Here's the problem though, and I don't know why Douglas did this, Putnam was Percival Lowell's brother-in-law. Putnam showed the letter to Lowell, Douglas was fired the next day receives a telegram from Lowell, Mr. Douglas, your services are no longer required. So poor Andrew Ellicott Douglas, out of a job. I think in the five years he was not employed in astronomy, he couldn't get a job at Harvard because they didn't have funding for it. Um, so he had a part-time job at Northern Arizona Normal School where he taught Spanish and he taught math and he taught physics, okay? And um, he also ran for probate judge of Coconino County as well. I think it was at this time, too, he really was able to indulge in his interest in tree rings because there are plenty of trees. And the, I, 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 before I get to Clara Fish, let's just say that Douglas had this idea that maybe if he could somehow reconstruct the climate history of Earth, it might correlate with the sunspot cycle. The sunspot cycle was very well known going back to, well, almost Galileo. So it's like, is there a connection? And he had the idea of measuring tree rings. Each ring represents a year. You can tell how old the tree is and whether each year was a relatively wet 
year, climactically, or a dry one based on how thick the ring was. And in fact, out on the table, we have some of our friends from the Laboratory of Tree Ring Science, which Douglas founded in 1938 after he stepped down as director of Stewart Observatory. Douglas invented a whole new science. It's called dendrochronology. And you can see some tree rings out there. Uh, and I just bring that to your attention. He had plenty of time in Flagstaff to work on it. But then this woman, this woman, Clara Fish, that's her maiden name. Roberts was her married name. She was born in 1876 in Tucson, so native Tucsonan. She was born before the gunfight at the OK Corral. But what makes her really special, if you go down to the Women's Plaza of Honor, which is next to Centennial Hall, you'll see her name prominently displayed. She was the very first student to matriculate at the University of Arizona in 1891. Now, you've seen the propaganda from the university, founded 1885. We even celebrated our centennial in 1985. I was here when they did that. But in 1885, that's when the legis territorial legislature gave the grant to do it. The University of Arizona only existed on paper from 1885 to 1890. You just don't start a university. You've got to build a building and hire a faculty, right? So the university did not open its doors and teach classes until the fall of 1891. Clara Fish was the first student in line to sign up for classes. There were only two majors in 1891 here at the University of Arizona, mining and agriculture. And she majored in mining. She was also the only woman in the first graduating class of the university. The graduating class of 1894 contained four graduates, three men and Clara Fish. She founded the U of A Alumni Association she was also a school teacher for many years. She was a member of the Tucson School Board. But here's where I dropped my pencil and I fell out of my chair when I was reading her biography. She taught at Northern Arizona Normal School in Flagstaff from 1901 to 1905. I've always wondered, how the heck did D Douglas get a job here in Tucson? How did he make it down here? And it's like, well, I can imagine being one of the first graduates of the university that the president of the university, Horace Babcock, would know who Clara Fish was. And Northern Arizona Normal School was a very small place. She had to have met Douglas there. She moves back to Tucson in 1905. Douglas gets a job here in 1906. I still am looking for the smoking gun letter. You know, I want to find out the connection, but I think she's responsible for Douglas getting his job here. Okay? Now, we'll hear more about her later. So Douglas comes here in 1906 as professor of physics, astronomy, and geography. This is the, actually the first telescope at the University of Arizona. It was purchased in 1891 when they opened for classes by a, a member of the Board of Regents, Merrill Freeman, and it was on a pillar, a pier, just to the west of Old Main. It's where that memorial fountain is now, but that fountain was built after World War I. Prior to that, there was a telescope there. And here's Douglas with some students at the telescope. Now, where was Douglas located? Well, you may recognize this building. Today, we call it communications building. But it was built in 1908. It was Science Hall. This is where physics, biology, and chemistry could move out of Old Main and into their own accommodations. And I believe physics was on the third floor. And there's a roll-off shed on the roof of this building. The shed's still there. From 1908 to 1922, Douglas had borrowed an eight-inch refractor from his old boss, Pickering, at Harvard. And from, this is where astronomy was done on campus from 1908 to 1922. Douglas observed Comet Halley in 1910 from the roof of this building. But he wanted his own telescope. 
Douglas wanted, wanted to compete with Lowell. He wanted his own telescope. And I've read the letters he wrote to the territorial legislature trying to convince them to appropriate money. You can probably you will appreciate this, right, and commiserate. They wouldn't have it. Then Arizona becomes a state in 1912. The anniversary, our statehood day, was just last Wednesday. State legislature, not interested. So how's a guy to get his own observatory? You find a rich widow. That's how it was done. And there's Douglas's rich widow, Lavinia Stewart of Oracle, Arizona. Now, her husband, Henry Stewart, was born in England, emigrated to Akron, Ohio. And it was there that he met Lavinia. She was born and raised in northeastern Ohio. And he learned how to mill oats. That's the trade he learned. Lavinia and Henry then moved to Peoria, Illinois, where Henry founded the Peoria Oat Company. Later on, it merged with another company to become Quaker Oats. That's where the original money to start Stewart Observatory came from. It was Quaker Oats money. He stayed in Illinois for most of the time, but you see, they had no children of their own, but he had a brother who died young and left behind two sons. So they took care of their two nephews. One of them, Fred Stewart, was tubercular. And when you had tuberculosis, where did you go? You went to Arizona. And so in, the, in 1898, she moved out to Oracle with uh, uh, her nephew. They built their own house in Oracle. It's still there. It's called the Stewart House. They funded the first library in Oracle. And she was interested in astronomy. Now, poor old Henry, he finally retired in 1900, moved out to Oracle, and promptly died 10 months later. I guess Arizona didn't agree with him. So she was a widow for most of the time that she was living in Oracle. Now, the question is, how did Douglas meet her? This I do know, because a woman who works for the Oracle Historical Society showed me something. She found a photograph of Lavinia Stewart. Sometimes history isn't written in in letters or in journals. It's written on the back of photographs. Here's a picture of Lavinia and Clara Fish Roberts in her handwriting. Turns out Fred Stewart, the guy with tuberculosis, he got married and his wife, who would be Lavinia Stewart's niece, was best friends with Clara Fish Roberts. And she wrote, upon hearing of Professor Douglas's need for astronomical equipment and knowing that Mrs. Stewart was interested in astronomy, or, or knowing, I think she said that, that she wanted to, I'm paraphrasing, that she wanted to give a, 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 a bequest to the university, that my suggestion was well received. So I've, Clara Fish is the person, Clara Fish Roberts connected Douglas with her best friend's aunt, Lavinia Stewart. And Lavinia had her own little telescope. She used to show her grandnieces and nephews the night sky. She had a three-inch refractor. And she wanted to memorialize her husband at the university. She wanted to give a gift. So 1916, October 18th, it was announced. This was the day, next day, Arizona Daily Star. Anonymous friend gives UA $60,000, money to be used to buy a telescope of huge size. She wanted to be kept anonymous, but she passed away 10 months after this in, in August of 1917. Once she died, the university felt that they could reveal the anonymous donor was Lavinia Stewart. $60,000, that's 1916 dollars. Today, that buys about $1.3 million. It was the largest, let's put it this way, the largest gift that the university had ever gotten. It had only been in business for 25 years at this time. So the President von Kleinschmidt, what he did was he canceled classes and had a bonfire. And the pep band played. Uh, 
Where to put the observatory, though? Ah, that was interesting. Because Douglas wanted to get real science done. He wanted to put it out in the Tank of Erdi region, out by Bear Canyon. Douglas, or Van Kleinschmidt, saw the observatory as a great tribute to the uh, greatness of the university. He wanted to put it right in the middle of campus, where Centennial Hall is right now. So the compromised location was at the corner of 2nd Street and Cherry Avenue. The Ag School had an ostrich farm there. It was off campus. Where was, this was off campus in 1918. So here's a picture. They broke ground in 1919. And this is where we're sitting right now. Here's 2nd Street. Here's Cherry Avenue. The nearest buildings are Old Main, Forbes Hall, which is the Ag College, and the Engineering and Mining School. That's what it looked like back then. Now, after they broke ground, the reason for the delay was World War I. The company that was going to make the telescope had war contracts. Here's the director of the Yerkes Observatory. I just love this picture because of the car. Um, at the Stewart Building under construction, that's what the, the view to campus looked like during construction. The dome itself, which is a metal frame with wood slats and a canvas exterior, so it's a wooden dome, was built here in Tucson. Final, and there's Douglas with the workmen putting in the mount for the telescope. It was going to be a 36-inch re Newtonian reflector telescope. First light was in July of 1922. There's the Catalina Mountains. There's the Rincon Mountains. There's our old original front door. And you can see the business end of the telescope peeking through right there. I'm proud of this. Even before the telescope was dedicated, Douglas wanted members of the public looking through it. He had the first steward public evening in September of 1922. And there's the Tucson Citizen article. We're very happy that, except for the four years of World War II, we have had public lectures, the public evening series, every year since 1922. And we're, we're proud of that. Um, finally, he found a keynote speaker, the first two people he asked for various reasons. One was George Ellery Hale was too ill to come, and W.W. W. Morgan couldn't make it. So Robert Aiken came from the Lick Observatory. Uh, there's the platform, there's the program, the orchestra played, the new president of the university, Cloyd Heck Marvin, who would be inaugurated the next day, was there. Uh, Robert Aiken gave the keynote address. Douglas gave an address. So did uh, a representative of the Lowell Observatory. Lowell passed away in 1916, I think. So relations with Lowell Observatory improved. There's the Tucson Citizen article. I'm, I'm really gonna, gonna, gonna wrap this up now because I'm getting to the end of my time, but I wanna show you this is the original Stewart Telescope, a 36-inch a Newtonian reflector. It was known as the All-American Telescope, first telescope where every component was made in the USA. Prior to World War I, American astronomers usually went to Germany or France to get their optics, and that was hard to do after World War I. Here is a shot of campus from an airplane in 1924. There's Old Main. You can see Stewart Observatory way off campus. And look, there's Speedway. <laughs> and there's nothing north of Speedway, almost nothing. Very cool. Our only presidential visit. If you open our guest register, you'll see on May the 1st, 1925, a gentleman named Calvin Coolidge visited Stewart Observatory. He says he's from Vermont, but he was actually the sitting president of the United States. Um, couple of things I want to show you. I guess I could tell you that not only was there a tennis court, but there was a golf course. And I've seen some nasty letters between Pop McHale, the athletic director, and Douglas. Douglas was afraid a golf ball might find its way through the dome slit and to his mirror. 
Um, today, of course, that front door is no longer there. It was boarded up in 1960 when the first addition was made. Um, the only color picture I have of Andrew Ellicott Douglas, taken in 1951 with his successor, Edwin Carpenter, who took over as director in 1938, then Douglas went to the stadium and founded the Tree Ring Lab, which had temporary accommodations in the stadium, temporary accommodations, from 1938 to 2012. <laughs> this gentleman is very interesting. He was the third faculty member to be hired in 1951, Walter Fitch. I was his TA for the very last class he taught before he retired in 1983. Uh, he passed away five years ago in 2012. But he did photoelectric photometry. It was interesting that you could electronically get the magnitude, the brightness of a star, without having to develop photography. Um, Edwin Carpenter with students. The students love to see what 1957 students, how they dressed. Um, but the last thing I want to show you, uh, last two things. The telescope was removed in 1963 to Kitt Peak because the skies were darker and clearer. There's the late Professor Tom Garrels from our friends at the Lunar Planetary Lab with the old 36-inch telescope, now painted white. It is part of the Space Watch program. I think Buell might say something about Eden Meinel, and I'm running out of time. So, but I did want to, when Professor Carpenter died of a heart attack, the first director of Kitt Peak, who then moved to the University of Arizona, became sort of an interim director until Professor Bart Bach arrived in 1966. But the last thing that I want to say I'm not going to mention LPL, is that in 1969, and this is where I want to end it, 1969, you see, small observatory, small faculty, they were involved with Edwin Hubble. Some of the data that Hubble and Hummison used for the expansion of the universe was taken here at the Stewart Observatory. But the first big scientific result that, that made a splash in the astronomical community was Professor John Cock, who's emeritus, he's still around town, and his colleagues, Mike Disney and Don Taylor, there a radio pulsar had been detected in the Crab Nebula. They used Douglas's 36-inch telescope up on Kitt Peak and detected an optical pulsar. The thing was blinking 33 times a second. And they were the first to do that. And notice you could also smoke back then in the room. <laughs> All right, I'm going to stop here in 1969. Thank you so much. <laughs>